open up the Word to Leviticus 23, as others will join with us, and we'll read from verse 23. So Leviticus 23, and then uh, reading from verse 23. We'll just read just three verses this morning, and then look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Leviticus 23 and verse uh, 23. And the word of the Lord says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein, but ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Amen. And we'll just end that short reading there, verse 25. So let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer, please, as we come to consider what lies before us here in these few verses. Let's pray. Our gracious God and eternal loving Father, we thank and bless thee that we can come together in this fashion. We can gather around the word. We thank thee, Lord, for the assembling of thy people on this thy day in thy house. We thank thee, Lord, for bringing us safely through another year. And Lord, we thank thee for the grace that finds us, Lord, here in the last day of 2023. We thank thee, Lord, that thou hast been gracious and merciful to us. And Father, Lord, we come to consider another feast of the Lord. We pray, O God, for help and the opening up of the Scripture, the opening up of our hearts, the shedding of light upon the sacred page, O God, that Thou would edify us, that Thou would instruct us, that Thou would lead us, O God, in these things. These things were written for our learning. And Lord, we pray that we would learn this morning. And Lord, that we would implement, that we would do. We pray, O Father, Lord, for our Sunday school and for our Bible classes. We pray, O God, for our teachers and we ask, O God, that Thou would bless them and fill them with the Spirit. And even, Lord, at this very, even late hour of this year, that Thou would be pleased to speak to some young person, some boy or girl. And, Lord, that this would be the day of their salvation. Oh, Father, Lord, we're always looking. We're continually longing for Thee to work, for salvation is off the Lord. And we pray, O Father, that Thou would bless the Word as it goes forth in this house today, not only here, Lord, but across our little denomination, across the nations of this world, missionary endeavor, others who are faithful and of like precious faith. O oh God, we pray for a, a great ingathering. O oh God, we ask, O oh God, that Thou be pleased to visit the Church of Christ, that Thou would pour out Thy Spirit upon us and give us help in these dark and these last days. Father, we lift our eyes heavenward, and I now come to Thee, and I stand in need of a fresh cleansing. I pray that You would wash me in the Redeemer's blood, that Thou would fill me with Thy Spirit, that Thou would help me to speak. Lord, Thou hast given help in the preparation. Lord, I need help in the preaching. And Lord, to that end, give me power, the power of the Spirit, that He will come and take, O God, the things, O God of Christ, and show them unto us. So, Lord, hear our cry, and do us good this morning, even as we gather together in this fashion. For this we ask in the Savior's worthy and His precious name. Amen. Now, every culture and country regularly breaks up the monotony of life with festive commemorations, whether to mark birthdays or wedding anniversaries, political achievements or military victories. Such observances give the opportunity to honor people and to call to remembrance important events of the past. Now, traditionally, as we well know in this country and many others beside, the 25th of December 
is a day that we have to remember the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not to say that the Lord Jesus was born on that date. In fact, the evidence would conclusively show that it's more than likely that he wasn't born on the 27th of December. But nevertheless, it is a day in which we celebrate his birth, and it's good. It is good to have particular days in the year to focus the mind and the heart upon such spiritual truths. Now, we have noticed in this study that the Lord appointed special feasts and festivals which punctuated Israel's calendar. These special seasons, these special events kept His people aware of, well, key moments in their history and their past and impressed upon them the core truths concerning their relationship with Him. Now, if we have noted that there are seven feasts in total are recorded here in Leviticus 23. And even though these feasts belong to the Old Covenant, the New Covenant believers, that's us, we have much to learn from them. In Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17, they are described as a shadow of things to come. And the redemptive things have come in Christ. He has fulfilled the law. So the shadows, they are lost in the substance of Christ. And yet the shadows remain instructive to us, for the Old Testament Scriptures are those which testify of Him. Now, the last time in the adult Bible class we thought about the Feast of Weeks, and that's found in verses 15 to 22. We considered the rudiments of the feast, or the basic principles. It's one of the three mandatory feasts of the Jewish meals which they had to attend. It was a feast which marked the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and it was again a prompt to the people to be thankful to their God for all their temporal blessings. Now, since it occurred 50 days after the Feast of the First Fruits, it was also called the Feast of Pentecost. And we noticed that the time corresponded really to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And we made uh, uh, the similarities and we looked at the contrast between that Pentecost and the Pentecost that we read in Acts chapter 2. Secondly, we thought about the representation in the Feast of Weeks, and especially we focused in upon the two wheaten loaves that were offered. Many believe that those two wheaten loaves, they are representative of Jew and Gentile, which make up the one company of the redeemed. And the leaven was present in those loaves, and that was uh, symbolic of the leaven of sin that remains in all believers in this life, in this world, which is only finally purged from the soul at death. Now, we noted that those two loaves, they were not offered in isolation. Waved along with them was two young lambs, and the loaves were accepted on the basis of the lamb. And again, we know the typical significance of that. Now, we see the fulfillment really of that feast is when the day of Pentecost, when it fully uh, come, the Holy Ghost was poured out, and that really marked the ingathering of the Gentiles of God's elect in earnest. And it's by the sending of the Spirit, typified by the pouring out of the former and the latter rains, that the harvest of souls is gathered in. Then finally we looked at the requirement attached to the Feast of Weeks in verse 22. God has blessed us, and as He has done so, we are to be mindful of those who are spiritually hungry and famishing that are all around us, and were to deal out the bread of the gospel to them. And as we thought about concerning the Feast of Weeks, the rudiments of the feast, 
the representation in the feast, and then the requirement attached to the feast. Now, this morning we come to the fifth of the feasts of the Lord mentioned in Leviticus 23, the Feast of Trumpets. And we have three verses here, and also we have a corresponding portion in Numbers 29, verses 1 to 6. And there we have more detail concerning the sacrifices that were to be offered. Now, I'm not going to go into the sacrifices this morning. We have already looked at those. We've already thought about what they mean, the spiritual significance, the nature of them, and how those things relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's much repetition, there's much overlap in all those offerings and sacrifices that were rendered unto the Lord. However, must keep in mind, we can never isolate. We can never divorce what we have here typified in the Feast of Trumpets from redemption through the blood by the sacrifice. We can never do that. You see, if we do that, if we separate what we have here typically from the feasts, from redemption by the blood, well, then that's what leads people into error concerning, well, their eschatology and concerning the mention of trumpets that we have in the New Testament. They, they divorce it, as it were, from the whole scheme and the plan of redemption, and, and you should never, ever do that. The coming of Christ is related to redemption. It is the consummation of redemption. And so while we're not going to look at the offerings or the sacrifices in detail, because there's much overlap, well, we can never divorce what we have here represented in the Feast of Trumpets from redemption by the blood. So we're going to consider the Feast of Trumpets. Firstly, this morning, the weighing of the feast. The weighing of the feast. Verse 24 says there, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month. So there we have clearly outlined for us when this feast was to be observed. This is the first of the three autumnal feasts of the Lord. The others were the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. And this feast, or these feasts, they would have occurred really in our calendar months between September and October. Now, the Feast of Trumpets was the only feast of the seven feasts that began on the first day of the month. And the seventh month was known as, or is known as, Tishri in the Hebrew. Now, the Hebrew calendar was uh, lunar-dependent. And that mean, means that each month began with the new moon. The beginning of each month, well, it was dependent on the sighting of a new moon. When the moon, it only showed a very small crescent. The nights would have been dark, and therefore the precise timing was not easily determined. That's how the months were determined. The first sighting of the smallest slither of the new moon. Now, over time, tradition required that two witnesses needed to observe the first slither of that new moon. Then they were to attest it to the Sanhedrin in the temple. And this could happen during two days, depending on when the witnesses came to the temple. Now, since no one knew when the witnesses would come, no one knew really when precisely the Feast of the Trumpets would start. But after the appearance of the new moon was confirmed, then it could begin, and the rest of the autumnal feasts could be accurately calculated from that date. And so that's, while it said it was to be the first day of the seventh month, 
Well, no one really precisely knew when that month was because it was determined by the lunar cycle and the first slither, the first observance of that moon. Now, that feast, it occurred, well, at the general time, at the end of the harvest season. The barley harvest had been gathered in, the wheat harvest had been gathered in, the grape and the oil, uh, or the olives, had been all gathered in at that time. And it came, that time it came before the rains, or the former rains fell, or the early rains fell, uh, at the start of the new growing season. So it was in between that time. The harvest was all safely gathered in, and it was also observed before the new rains came for the new growing season. And that really was an apt time for Israel again to return thanks to God for the harvest, and also to look to Him for the blessing of the former and the latter rains at the beginning of the new growing season. And these feasts, we see, they're very dependent upon the agricultural society at that time, but they afforded a pause for Israel to remember that every temporal blessing comes from God, that He is the source of every good and perfect gift. Now, in Judaism today, this feast is known as Rosh Hashanah. And that literally means the head of the year. Now, it's never known by that name in Scripture. That's a designation that wasn't applied to this feast until the second century. And that was more than 1,500 years after, really, the institution of the feast. A lot of years after the institution of that feast. Now, the timing of that feast, it coincided with the beginning of Israel's civil year. Civil year. It has to be said that there are two new years, really, in Judaism. Maybe even more than that. If you remember back to the feast of the Passover, you remember there that the Lord changed. He changed the first month of the year from Tishri, the seventh month, to Aviv, to become the first month of of the year. But that was really the start of the Jewish religious new year. But as I've mentioned, the Hebrew calendar is calculated by the lunar seasons. And so this Rosh Hashan, well, it's the start of the year, uh, the civil Jewish year. It's the time of the year where Jews would say to each other, Shana Tova. And that means good year. That's equivalent to our happy new year. And so it is very appropriate that we are looking at this feast at this time of the year, even though our dates do not coincide. So try and keep that in your head. Really, in Judaism, there's, there's two new years, if you like. There is the religious new year that begins at Passover, the month of Eve, but then there is the civil new year, and that begins in the seventh month, Tishri, and that's when they would say to each other, good year, have a good year, and that's really equivalent to, to what we are remembering at this time of the year. The Jews believed that on this first day of the seventh month, and I mentioned this before, that God created the heavens and the earth. They also believed that Adam was created on this day. They believed that Samuel was born on this day, and they believed that the first temple was dedicated on this day. They attached great significance to this first day of the seventh month. Now, as I mentioned, this 
Feast of Trumpets, it marked the beginning of the high holy days in the Jewish calendar. And this month was also celebrated, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, there were ten days that marked between the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets, which was one day, and the Day of Atonement. And those days are considered the most solemn holy days in the Jewish religious calendar. They are called the days of awe or the days of repentance. And that was a time for a, a serious introspection by the Jews, a time to consider the mistakes of the past, days in which they were to repent, to fast, to make reconciliation with those whom they may have wronged, to sorrow over their sin in preparation for the Day of Atonement. And that's just some of the traditions that now surround us feast in Judaism. It's a day of self-examination, a day of making wrongs right, a day of fasting, a day, days of preparation, days of repentance. Now, I know around the turn of our new year, there's all sorts of traditions that have developed. And one of them is what? Making New Year's resolutions. But whatever one might think of that, it is good. It is good for God's people to pause and to give thanks for all the blessings received, to look to Him for blessings for uncertain days. It's also good to stop and to make a search of our own hearts in a spiritual sense, to take time for introspection under the operation of the Holy Spirit by the standard of the Word to evaluate, to consider the mistakes and the failures of previous days, to repent and to put right the wrongs that we can. And I suppose there is no better time to do that than the turn of the new year. And that's what the Jews did at the turn of their civil new year. They took the time to pause, to reflect, to consider, to repent, to put wrongs right, and to endeavor to do what God required of them. And I suggest to you, there is no better time in the year than the turn of the year than for God's people to do that, to think back in the year that's gone by, to consider our own mistakes, our own failures, our own shortcomings, to repent of those, and to ask God for the grace to go on with Him and to do what is required by Him in 2024. And so this was a time when these uh, Israelites were to observe this feast, the when of the feast. But secondly, this morning, the how of the feast. How was this feast to be observed? Well, it has to be said that following the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, in A.D. 70, the observance of this feast, as with all the other feasts, was dramatically altered. Without a temple, without a sacrificial system, these feasts, they could no longer be observed in the manner in which God intended. And the fact is, they don't need to be observed in that manner because Christ has fulfilled them. The book of Hebrews, it clearly outlines for us that the old economy, the old dispensation has been superseded. It has been put away by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do have a few details here 
on how this feast was to be kept. Once again, the observance of it, the details concerning it was given by God to Moses, was passed on to the people. We're told here in Leviticus 23 that it was to be designated as a Sabbath in which no servile work was to be done. It was also to be a form of worship that involved a gathering of the people together. It was something to be observed in a company of people as indicated by those words, and holy convocation. It's a calling of the people together. Then in Numbers 29, if you want to turn over there, but we'll not read from there at the moment. In Numbers 29, we have outlined all the sacrifices that were to be offered on this day, how it was to be observed. We read there about the burnt offering and what it consisted of, Numbers 29, verses 1 to 6. It speaks there, the burnt offering, one young bullock, one ram and seven lambs of the first year without blemish. And then we have the meat offering, or we could say the grain offering. There's there of a flour mingled with oil, three-tenth deals for a, a bullock and two-tenth deals for a ram, one-tenth for one lamb throughout the seven lambs. And then we have the sin offering. There's one kid of the goats to make an atonement for you. So we have all the sacrifices there, and they were to be offered alongside the daily, the daily offerings that were prescribed by the Lord. Now, the activities and the offerings stipulated, well, they appear in the other feasts or various other feasts of the Lord. The cessation of work, the coming together, the offering of sacrifice. What then is distinctive about the Feast of Trumpets, you might ask? Well, the clues in the name. Look at Numbers 29, verse 1. It tells us there, and in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall have an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. And here's a distinctive that sets this day apart, makes it different from other days that were Sabbaths, that were holy convocations, that offered similar sacrifices. It is a day of blowing the trumpets unto you. Israel was commanded to memorialize the day by blowing trumpets. And that's obviously how the feast got its name. Now in Leviticus, so we go back there, 23, the words blowing of trumpets, they are a translation, Leviticus 23 and the verse 24. It's a translation of one Hebrew word. It's a word that means a shout, an acclamation of joy, a battle cry and alarm. And it can include the idea of a loud noise made by a wind instrument Hence the translation that we have here, trumpets. Now, well, you can see details concerning this feast are very sparse. There's four verses here, and there's six verses in, in, in Numbers 29. So we, we lean a lot on uh, history and, uh, and tradition, Jewish tradition, for information concerning this feast. But Jewish tradition indicates that both uh, shofar and the priestly silver trumpets of Numbers 10 were used in this feast. The shofar, you might ask what that is. You might know what it is. Well, it was the curved trumpet fashioned from a ram's horn. In the Hebrew language, the shofar, it was clearly distinguished from another word, kirin, which means the horn of an animal. If it wasn't used as a wind instrument, well, in the Bible, we just read it as a kirin, a horn. But if it's a Curved trumpet, well then it was called a shofar. 
Now, it's believed that those horns that were used came from the rams that were offered as a sacrifice. And again, tradition and history show that the trumpets constructed from cow's horns, they were rejected because they were a reminder of Israel's idolatrous worship of the golden calf at the bottom of Mount Sinai. The ram's horn was seen as a much more pleasant reminder of God's deliverance of Isaac through the ram that was caught by its horns in the thicket. And so you can apply yourself the imagery here, that the significance of what this all points to, the blowing of the horn, the ram's horn. And they said it was the ram that, or it signified or it pointed to the ram that was placed on the altar instead of Isaac. And so we can bring our minds to what this means concerning Christ and proclaiming the finished sacrificial substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 81 and verse 3, we read these words, Blow the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. And there the word for trumpet is shofar. It's the ram's horn. Now again, as I said, we're learning here from Jewish historians that during the feast, the shofar and or the silver trumpets of the priests, they were blown in a cycle of a hundred blasts, some short lengths, some longer lengths. With the final blast known as the last trump, the longest of all. And it lasted as long as the trumpeter could breathe out the sound. Now, the blowing of the trumpet in Jewish culture wasn't only confined to this day. In Numbers chapter 10, if you want to turn to Numbers 10, we have a number of times when the trumpet was to be blown. And so, the, the blowing of the trumpet had its significance in Jewish culture. It wasn't just to be blown on this feast day, but it was to be blown at other times as well. But we see there from Numbers 10... Uh, a number of different times when the trumpet was to be blown. We notice that the trumpets were blown for the purpose of worship. In the first 10 verses we have here of when these silver trumpets were to be blown, a description of them in verse 2, make these uh, the two trumpets of silver of a whole piece shalt thou make them, and thou, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. And so we see there they're for use for the purpose of worship, calling the people together. They're also used for walking when the camp of Israel were to be on the move. And we read on down, if we go on down, they're also used for warfare, to sound out the battle cry, for worship, for walking, for warfare among the children of Israel. The people were to respond to the sound of each trumpet blast, and each of the purposes for which it was sounded out would have been distinguished by a different note or a different type of an alarm. The people would have known why the trumpets were sounded by what they heard, whether for worship, whether for walking, or whether for warfare. And therefore we can say trumpets were used to communicate the mind of God to the people with reference to their worship, to their walking, to their warfare, for their preparations, as we read here, for movement and for war. 
And these trumpets were in the hands of the sons of Aaron, the priests, men consecrated for the work of the sanctuary, and men who dwelt within its precinct. You see, the position of these men enabled them to discern the earliest movements of the cloud and the pillar of fire, and then to make them know those movements, the movements of God, unto the people through the sounding out of the trumpet. Now, in a similar way today, the mind and the will of God is made known unto His people through the sounding out of His Word. And the responsibility of that lies upon those who are consecrated unto His service. And here's what we and what you ought to pray for such men. And this is what we learn from this. These priests, they dwelt within the precinct of the tabernacle. They were close to discern the earliest movement of the cloud and the pillar of fire. Here's what we should pray for such men today who make known the will of God through the sounding out of the Word. We should pray that they will abide under the shadow of the mighty, that they will dwell in the most holy place of the Most High God in order, why? In order that they might be sensitive to the movements or the promptings of the Holy Spirit, that they would wait for the Word of the Lord that would be suitable for the needs of the saints. You want the will of God. You want to know how to to worship, to walk, to warfare. You want to know the mind, the will of God. Well, it's through the sounding out of the Word of God. Therefore, pray for ministers, for the servants of God, that they may abide under the shadow of the mighty, that they might be sensitive and discerning of the promptings of the Spirit of God, that they might get the Word of God for you, for you. Now, I thought about this, and I've been thinking, well, where should I go after our study in the book of Philippians ends? And this is something that you ought to pray for that God would communicate His mind, His will to this congregation, how we are to worship, how we are to walk, how we are to warfare in 2024. That's a responsibility that lies upon you as God's people. We see it here. The mind, the will of God was communicated to His people through the trumpets. Now, the Apostle Paul, he picks up on the use of trumpets, and he employs it by way of illustrative instruction in 1 Corinthians 14 in the verse 8. And you probably know the verse. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? Now, the trumpet was used for various purposes and more, to summon the soldiers, to animate them in their march, to call them forth to battle, and to signify to them what they were to do in battle, whether to charge, whether to advance, whether to hold their ground, or whether to retreat. And in this way, the trumpet, we might say, it employed a language. And if that language was not discernible or clear to the soldiers, they would not know what to do. So in like manner, foreign tongues, For that's what the New Testament speaks about when it speaks of tongues. 
foreign languages. If foreign languages at that time were spoken in a particular assembly, well, they would be useless in regard to a believer's duty, their responsibility, their comfort, their edification, their walk, if they did not understand what was being said unto them. And that's why Paul uses there, it's in the context of tongues and about a translator being there. And that's all to do with foreign languages. It's nothing to do with babblings. Because God's people need to know the mind and the will of God from the Word of God in order to know what to do in the conflict, in the fight, in the battle. And that's why Paul, he employs the language here, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? And so, the blowing of the trumpets was central to this fifth feast of the Lord. And it was a key component in how they were to observe it. So we thought about the when of the feast, the how of the feast. What about now the why of the feast of the trumpet? Why was this feast to be celebrated, observed? Well, I've already pointed out it was another time for Israel to, to stop, to come together, and to thank the Lord for all His blessings and His goodness towards them. It was a time to reflect upon the past and to prepare for the future, especially for the Day of Atonement. Well, there's another reason that I want to emphasize on why this was to be celebrated, and a clue is given in the word memorial back there in Leviticus 23 and the verse 24. A memorial, a memorial of blowing off trumpets and holy convocation. Well, who is supposed to be remembering? And what are they remembering? Or who, whom are they remembering? Does this imply, does this relate only to the people? That they are to remember something or someone. Well, we have an important parallel there in Numbers chapter 10, if you turn there again. And that helps to shed light on the matter, on the why of this feast. Why celebrate it? Why observe it? Who's remembering? Whose memorial is this? Numbers chapter 10 and the verses 9 and 10. It's a parallel passage. I know this is blowing of the trumpet concerning war, but the blowing of the trumpet did a certain thing. Numbers chapter 10, verse 9, it says, And if ye go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets. And ye shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. Also, in a day of your gladness, and in your solemn days, and the beginning of your months, and here's a relation now to the feasts, and especially this feast, ye shall blow with the trumpets, over your burnt offerings, and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. And here we learn it was the Lord who would remember His people by the blowing of the trumpets. It was like a musical prayer to acknowledge or request divine help, a prayer that tended to be answered. Now, the Hebrew root for remembering doesn't necessarily imply that information pops into a person's head after it has been unintentionally forgotten or slipped out of their mind. In the Old Testament, this Hebrew word to remember 
It's more a volitional matter, a choice to think upon. And here it refers to the Lord's choice to bring the Israelites to the forefront of His attention in the sense of acting for their benefit. God doesn't need to have His memory jogged by the trumpet blasts. But the sound of the trumpets symbolically engaged Him to work on His people's behalf. And we read of such phrases in the Old Testament about God remembered or God remembering. Take Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis, sorry, 8 and the verse 1, and God remembered Noah. It wasn't that Noah slipped out of his mind, but rather God began to act on behalf of Noah. And we see that there in the, the drying up of the waters and all the rest of it. Here's how one 19th century theologian put it. The sounding of the trumpets at worship took the place, as it were, of an invocation or a prayer. It was to bring the people to God's remembrance, or rather, to bring the people to the consciousness that God was thinking of them. So the Feast of Trumpets had highlighted the truth that God is ever committed to the good of His covenant people, that they are upon His mind, and that He acts on their behalf, and He does so, in answer to their prayers. It also distilled within them a sense of their dependence upon God and their responsibility to call out to Him. The trumpet blasts were a vivid way of crying out, a musical way, Lord, we need You. Lord, remember us. Take pity on us. Hear us. We pray and do, and do. Christians, we stand in no less need of God's favor today. And through Christ, we are assured that He does remember us. The Lord Jesus Himself, He said in Luke chapter 12, 6 and 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. He forgets not the sparrows. He will forget not us. But though God will never forget His people, He does desire us to call out to Him to remember us, to blow the trumpet of prayer as it were. The psalmist, he prayed in Psalm 25, verse 7, According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. So there is responsibility upon us to pray. And why were these people to remember this feast? Well, it was really a vivid way of reminding them that God thought upon them. And God acted on their behalf in answer to their prayers. Fourthly and finally this morning, the what of the Feast of Trumpets. What does this feast signify? Well, the Feast of Trumpets, along with the six other feasts of the Lord, we know that it foreshadows certain aspects of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a major aspect of this feast is, of course, the second coming of the Lord. The prophets, they linked the blowing of the trumpets 
to the future day of judgment. So you could take Joel chapter 2 and verse 1 as an example. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. We could also think about the day of the Lord and the trumpet blast in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. This is a theme that's taken up in the New Testament. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he's speaking there about the coming of the Lord that will happen in the twinkling of an eye, and he mentions there the last trump, or the sounding of the trumpet. What does he say in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then in the book of the Revelation, we have all the mention of the blowing off the trumpets, and they're all in relation to the days preceding and the day of the coming of the Lord. So there's definitely what we might call a far and a future and an ultimate foreshadowing in this feast, the last trump, when Christ shall return again. But that's not all. Because as I said, this, this law, these laws in the Old Testament, they're fulfilled by Christ. And the sounding of the trumpets, not only to do with something future that is yet to be fulfilled, but it has to do with the proclamation of the gospel. When God sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost came to give the church power to testify, to proclaim, to herald, to sound out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to proclaim the Lamb, the finished, as I said, substitutionary, sacrificial work of God's Lamb. See, the announcement of the gospel, it's good news for those who would believe. They are called to be soldiers in God's army to advance His gospel, to proclaim the true jubilee. And the jubilee was another time when trumpets were to be blown, but the true jubilee, the release and the rest from the bondage of sin that's found alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that the priests, trumpets of Numbers 10, were made of one piece of silver a precious metal that has a, a special connection to redemption in the Scripture, it points really to the heralding forth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. While there is a rest that does remain for the children of God that will be eventually realized when the last trumpet is sound and Christ will come, we have to say that that last trump has a connection to the other sounding out of the trumpet. Because if it didn't, well then the prophetic significance of the last trump would be lost. You see, without the others, without the signing out of the gospel, and all the things that precede the coming of the Lord, well then the last trumpet would not be the last. And therefore now in these last days, these days which were inaugurated when Christ came and He died and He rose again, and continue on till when He comes again, we are now to sound forth the gospel. We are to proclaim the message of redemption. The trumpets were sounded so that the people would respond, so that they would come and hear what the Lord would have to say. And that is emphasized by the only recorded observance of this feast in Scripture. Only once is this feast 
recorded as being observed. Now, it was observed other times, but there's only one time it's recorded in Scripture. Ezra the scribe, he, re he related that it was during the Feast of Trumpets that the temple altar was rebuilt, and the sacrifices were reinstituted by those who returned from Babylonian captivity. And we read of that in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. The Jews gathered on the first day of the seventh month what to do to hear the law read and expounded. And Nehemiah records that on that day a revival took place as Ezra rehearsed God's word in the ears of the people. And as priests, as I said, we are now tasked with making God's word known with making the joyful noise known unto men. We should be sounding out the trumpet and taking the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because there is coming a day when the Son of Man will come in the clouds of heaven in great power and glory, and He shall send His angels with a great sound of the trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. And so, yes, the Feast of the Trumpets, it is connected with the coming of the Lord. But in these days, it's also concerned with the sounding out of the message of redemption. The Feast of Trumpets, just as I draw to an end, is also called in the Hebrew the hidden day. The hidden day because it is the only holy day designated by the Lord to be kept on a new moon. And as I said, that wasn't always easily distinguished. It was challenging, unpredictable. No one could precisely calculate the exact day or the hour when that feast would begin. When the disciples, they asked the Lord when and what would be the sign of His coming, what did He tell them? But off that day and hour, Knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Since the feast of the trumpets was also considered a high Sabbath, no work to be done, the Jews, therefore, must have made all preparations for that day in advance, a day and hour unknown to them. And since they didn't know the exact timing of the new moon's appearance, they would have kept the people in a continual state of alertness, he knew approximately when the new moon of, would appear, but he didn't know the exact hour. And watchfulness was a key and critical ingredient of that feast. And the need for watchfulness and preparedness is echoed and re-echoed throughout the New Testament in connection with the Lord's return. Matthew 24, 44 Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. As I conclude from Scripture, we also learn that the trumpets were blown for the coronation of the king. And we read about that King Solomon when he was coronated, 1 Kings chapter 1. And when the King of Kings comes, the last trumpet will be sounded. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that He is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And all crowns will be laid at His feet.
the when of the feast, the how of the feast, the why of the feast, and the what of the feast. And I trust the Lord will bless the study to your heart. Let's just bow for a word of prayer. Let's look to the Lord. Eternal God and loving Father, we thank the Lord for, once again, what we have learnt within this feast, and why we look forward to the last trump, when Christ shall return. We thank the Lord that you've given unto us the privilege of heralding out the message of redemption. Help us, O God, in 2024 to give a clear and a certain sound. O God, give us, as it were, the wind of the Holy Ghost and the breath of the Spirit within us that we would give a clear sound and that the people would respond, that they would come and hear what the Lord would have to say. And so, Lord, bless us and do us good. And, Lord, help us in a time of prayer. For this we ask in the Saviour's precious and his worthy name. Amen.